0: Good morning, my name is Jan Bender Shetler and I teach history here at Goshen College uh, specializing in African history and with some recent research and publication on peace in Tanzania and Ethiopia. So this semester I'm teaching a course called the History of Ethnic Conflict where we look at why ethnic conflict has become so prominent since World War II how oppositional identities are constructed and maintained, especially through historical memory, and how understanding that history of conflict might help us to work for peace. So this spring, the class has been working through three different case studies, one in Rwanda, one in Palestine, and one in India. And the book that we studied on Rwanda by Mahmoud Mamdani set out to understand this thorny moral dilemma of how victims can become killers. And while he doesn't ask us to condone that violence, he helps us to understand the logic of that long step-by-step process of how the preconditions for genocide developed over time. He asks us not to see these conflicts as inevitable, but as a direct result of how governments classify and give different political rights to some people as natives and others as aliens. Today is the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide in 1994, when over 800,000 people were killed within three months. This is the day set aside by the United Nations as a day of remembrance for those who died, and a time to think about how we can prevent similar tragedies from happening in the future. So today you want, we want you to join us for a Rwanda memorial. Not so much to dwell on what happened at that time, but how Rwanda can move forward to build a culture of peace. Three students from my class, Martin Hofkamp, Liz Whitrick, and Audrey Thill, are joined by Sandrine Sandrali, a senior from Rwanda. They will be sharing some insights they gained on this subject. So thanks and enjoy.
1: Martin, are you going to pay attention in Convo today?
2: Um, it's about uh, Rwanda, right? I, I already know about uh, Rwanda. It's, it's like a hotel or something, right?
1: No, Rwanda is not a hotel, Martin. Rwanda is a beautiful country in the east of Africa. It's small, it's mountainous, it has fertile soil, and um, they have, we have lots of people so it's densely populated and that's where I'm from.
2: Yeah, maybe I did hear something about that. That's like where the, um, the, the, the African tribes genocided each other and uh, it was, yeah, you know, like the African tribes are always fighting each other and like they've been doing that forever. They, they just get the opportunity and they slaughter each other.
3: Okay, Martin, seriously. There was a genocide in 1994, but that wasn't because they really hated each other or that they were really different. And actually, the Hutu and Tutsi tribes are really similar. They share common language and culture and history and religion and basically like everything you can think of that would define a particular ethnic group. Um, they even lived in the same land for as long as we had record and intermarried. And then when the Belgium government colonized Rwanda, that's when a particular political elite got named the Tutsi, and they were educated and given privilege. Um, And then with independence, the Hutu majority um, had a revolution and then took power.
2: Oh, um, right, somebody got on the radio and they heard that they should just kill each other and then they
3: just did it.
1: Well, you've heard something about it then. But
3: seriously, it's way more complicated. I mean, people don't just go out and kill their neighbors when they're told to. You really have to understand that this was in the context of a civil war, and there were Tutsi militia coming across the border from Uganda. And so there's a lot of fear and uncertainty about what would happen if these Tutsi militia gained power and then um, retaliated for this revolution. Um, But it is true, however, that the Hutu militia were organized by the government, and that the genocide was initially started by a more radical faction of the government.
2: I just don't understand why these African countries can't get their act together and govern themselves, you know?
1: Okay, hold off, Martin. Um, You're getting a little out of control. Uh, That's a whole different discussion about how independent nations were formed without changing the basic colonial structures.
3: Yeah, and actually, ironically, um, just before the genocide happened, the president, Habyarimana, was in Tanzania. I um, He was negotiating a peace deal that would have really helped to share power between the two groups and recognize everyone as native Rwandans.
2: So if it is that complicated and like, the Europeans messed everything up anyway, isn't it better if we just stay out of it and like, not worry about what's happening in Rwanda?
1: I think you're assuming that the only way the international community would have, would have been involved was by military intervention. But actually, um, there was U.S. peacekeepers in Rwanda at the time of the genocide, but they left because they thought the violence was inevitable. And so, because they did nothing, they allowed the genocide to continue.
2: Huh. I'm kind of curious now. Maybe I'll pay attention in chapel today. Do the Hutu and Tutsis get along?
1: Yeah, you've come to the right convoy, if that's your question. Um, this morning, we're talking about Rwanda and how, he, how it has moved forward and is working towards peace even now. Um, today, we're, memori- we're, we, um, we're memorializing uh, the genocide and we're recognizing the efforts that people from Rwanda and outside are making towards peace.
3: Good morning. Um, before I share with you about building peace in Rwanda and the surrounding region, Um, I just want to say a little bit about myself, and that is, I speak to you from a place of privilege. Um, I've never experienced war in my own hometown or my own home country, and I live in a nation that colonizes others, invades, and has a long history of violence towards its ethnic minorities. My education also allows me to consider peace um, at a big difference, or at a difference from conflict. So within the safety of my Goshen bubble, I can read the news and uh, listen to NPR. I can think about conflict like way out there and think to myself that that doesn't happen here. It's just Rwanda or the Middle East or Southeast Asia. But I want to emphasize that although I'm talking about Rwanda, much of what, have I, much of what I have to say is relevant to our own stories and our own countries and the oppressive relationships that we participate in or that we tacitly support. So, my reflections this morning are based on the work of Mahmoud Mamdani, as Jan mentioned, specifically his book, When Victims Become Killers. And Mamdani is of South Asian descent, and he's from Uganda. What I'll be sharing are some key issues that Mamdani says have to be addressed in order for Rwanda and the larger region to move forward towards peace. So, the first thing you need to understand is that the the genocide in Rwanda was not spontaneous and it wasn't just some burst of violence and hatred that's been around forever. Um, we have to get rid of the idea that people naturally hate one another and that this causes extreme violence. The conflict did not happen overnight and neither will peace and reconciliation. Second, if you ignore the historical and political and cultural context of a conflict, what you're left with is just this really small, thin version of the truth, the whole story. Um, And then solutions, based on this small section, are not going to establish peace. Part of the larger story in Rwanda is that the Tutsi were considered aliens in their own home. The Belgian colonial government propagated the Hamitic myth, and this is the idea that the Tutsi were actually black Caucasians who came down from the north to civilize the dark African continent. So the colonial government granted people privilege, or denied them privilege, based on their ethnicity. And this played a huge role in shaping and polarizing the Hutu and Tutsi identities. So recognizing this larger context helps to connect the genocide back to a bigger story and make it thinkable. And in order to move forward, these politicized ethnic identities have to be addressed, and which means recognizing everyone as Rwandans and everyone as people worthy of equal rights and not as aliens. Then there's a the matter of justice. And what does that look like when you have victims and perpetrators living beside each other? As long as justice for one group comes at the expense of another group, there's not going to be peace. It's like a cat attacking and killing a mouse and then that reversing and the cat becoming the mouse and this playing out over and over and over and this is what Mamdani calls victor's justice. The winner lives in fear that the loser will come back and retaliate, and the only kind of peace then is this negative militarized peace. So this kind of justice won't work in Rwanda, especially because the perpetrators in the genocide consider themselves victims of violence and oppression that dates way, way, way back before the genocide and before colonialism even. So when we look at a really long time frame, there aren't just victims and there aren't just perpetrators, but everyone is a survivor of a really long, uh, complicated, entangled history. So when we recognize this, then it helps to transcend just this winner-loser paradigm and give everyone, gives everyone a stake in constructing something new. Fourth, the conflict is a lot bigger than Rwanda. It goes beyond Rwanda's borders, and this was the case before the genocide and is especially true today. I think maybe some of you have um, heard about fighting in the Congo, or maybe you saw the Kony 2012 video a couple of years ago. And these things are part of a larger story, which is the deadliest war in the world going on now in the African Great Lakes region. And this this war has been going on for over a decade. And it's really troubling for a lot of reasons, but relevant to Rwanda is that it represents in part the unresolved conflict between the Hutu and the Tutsi groups. Because during the genocide, a lot of refugees fled Rwanda, um, and some of these were, were participants in the genocide. Today even they live in refugee camps along with thousands of displaced civilians, Um, And there are reports that some militarized groups are considering invading Rwanda and are on the border. So peace in Rwanda is really dependent on regional stability and also this unsolved issue of refugees who don't have a home and don't have citizenship rights anywhere. So it's up to, or there is a role for international bodies like the African Union um, and the United Nations to help Rwanda and these countries deal with these issues of um, dias- the diaspora community. Um, so I hope you noticed that I didn't just suggest like a ceasefire or sending in more peacekeepers, uh, because peace requires a lot more than putting away guns. And obviously that is important, but there's more to it. And peace requires a lot more creativity, which I think is a really great thing. Uh, working for positive peace means meeting basic human needs, it means rebuilding civil society, and engaging women as well as men, and creating places for people that are different, like the Hutu Tutsi, to meet and form relationships. Finally, I'd like us to consider how we perceive other countries that experience violent conflict, as well as our own conflicts in our own country. We have to be aware of how media coverage affects our perceptions of war and of people. Um, As the Rwanda genocide was going on, There were reporters using phrases like, orgy of terror and tribal savagery. And in general, US newspapers carried approximately um, two articles per month on the genocide in Rwanda, but 55 per month on the Bosnian conflict that was going on at the same time. I mean, how do you think words like orgy of terror, tribal savagery, and just this general lack of uh, media attention affect the world's perceptions of these people? So I think we have to be cautious of accepting just like a narrow story, um, and ones that are framed in ways that are shaped in ways that reflect our preconceived ideas about the world. Um, And it troubles me that I really don't know a lot about the war in the African Great Lakes region, um, let alone the initiatives for peace and reconciliation. So I think it might seem like a small matter, but I think it's important that we look for the larger story behind what we see in the news. If we do this, we might see parts of our own story reflected in what's out there. And finally, I hope that you can see your own life is a really important part of building peace in every community that you pass through. Thank you.
4: Good morning. I'm Liz Wittrig, and this semester, in our History of Ethnic Conflict class, I studied both how the Christian Church in Rwanda committed acts of violence and worked for peace. So from the arrival of the first missionaries in Rwanda, the Christian Church either promoted or failed to discredit racism that existed in the society. In its early years, the Church gained power through granting special leadership roles and educational privileges to the Tutsi over the Hutu. Then later, as the global church began to focus on social justice issues and on speaking for the marginalized, the church's favor suddenly turned from the Tutsis to supporting the Hutus that they had helped to oppress. In both instances, the church went along with the ethnic divisions that existed in Rwanda and failed to create an identity that brought both groups together. Now, during the years leading up to the genocide, there were some church leaders that published pastoral letters calling for the church to seek peace between the ethnic groups. But despite any efforts for peace, the genocide occurred in 1994 and provoked a variety of responses from the Christian church. Individual church members, priests, nuns, pastors, participated in the massacres. But other church members and leaders exhibited extreme moral courage. Survivors of the genocide tell stories of Christians that hid them in their churches, stood up to the militia, and risked their own lives to save their neighbors. Now whether church leaders joined in, condoned, or spoke against the genocide, throughout all of Rwanda, churches suddenly turned from sanctuaries to sites of mass violence. Instead of finding refuge in the church, thousands of Tutsis were killed there. So following the genocide, the Rwandan Christian Church began asking difficult questions about the unthinkable violence that occurred. How did the church become complicit in genocide? Why weren't victims safe in Christian sanctuaries? And how can the church possibly begin a long-term process for peace? In response to these difficult questions, individuals within the Catholic and Protestant churches have exemplified the power of public confession and apology for the entire nation. Individuals within the churches have spent the past 20 years publishing statements that confess both their complicity in the genocide and humbly acknowledge their need for grace. Individual congregations have followed up on this example of confession by documenting their congregation's history in Rwanda in order to expose how they either resisted or contributed to ethnic conflict. Churches have also worked to promote dialogue between the survivors of the genocide that focuses on building a better future. The churches have trained over 40,000 peace and justice workers to help NGOs and local congregations provide mediation services and support groups. Through worship services and programs, local congregations provide a space for people to meet and process their experiences together, acknowledge each other's humanity, and create steps to take for peace together. One Catholic congregation created this program for perpetrators to repent. By submitting to a disciplinary church process that requires them to either give up sacraments for six months or dig in a genocide survivor's garden as a small act of restitution. The Rwandan Christian Church also provides a space for survivors of the genocide to engage in healing symbolic rituals that commemorate their experiences that remain difficult to describe with words alone. Once a year, these congregations participate in the Hundred Days of Remembrance um, that occurs in Rwanda to commemorate the genocide. During this time, a flame is lit and carried in a lamp through over 30 districts throughout the country. Through each place that it passes, local community leaders and church leaders hold a night of remembrance, including candle lighting, prayer, and songs. Throughout Rwanda, the churches where massacres occurred now stand as memorial sites. Reminding church members that they must never let it happen again. At the Kibuye Memorial site, the church remains active, and a memorial wall stands at the church's entrance, built on top of a grave that contains the remains of 4,000 victims that were killed within the church. As church members enter the congregation for Sunday worship, they pass by a memorial wall that displays the words, Let us remember what happened here. We lacked brotherhood let us ask for mercy so that this does not happen again. Due to its complicity in the genocide, the Christian church must not be dismissed, but instead given the responsibility to continue building peace in Rwanda. Although the church constructed harmful ideologies, the church also holds the potential to deconstruct them. Throughout Rwanda, churches have spent the past 20 years constructing peace, through confession, dialogue, memorials, and everyday acts of compassion, through continually envisioning a better future, the Christian church provides citizens with hope. Churches are actively spreading a new ideology that transcends ethnic divisions, brings hope, and is rooted in Galatians 3:28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ.
1: My name is Sandrine Sandrali. I'm a senior here at Goshen College. Um, So today we're going to show you a video that was launched by the Kuibuka Foundation. Kuibuka means remembrance. Um, The foundation is funded partly by the government and also other international organizations. Um, It's the official video that was uh, launched to show um, give a a sub- perspective of memorializing the genocide.
4: So, here you go. <laughs>
2: A catenha, eu a sua casa, a sua casa, a sua casa, a sua
4: casa, a sua casa, a sua casa, a sua casa, a sua casa,
1: a sua casa, 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 a
3: sua casa, a sua a sua casa,
2: a sua casa, a a sua casa,
1: a sua
3: casa, a sua casa, a sua casa,
1: i She said, What
2: did you do? She puts it to the
1: child. Trash of her was born, but that never suffered the star.
3: Give her a star, and she doesn't give up at the above. She said, I teach how my daughter could
1: chacun peut tenir et on doit
4: y tenir um. et
2: surtout pour nos enfants et surtout pour les générations.
1: So the theme of Qubuka is, uh, as you saw, um, remember, reunite, and renew. Um, as Liz mentioned earlier, the one of the rituals that um, take place around this time all the way till today is um, called Urumuri, which means light or flame. Um, so that's why, that's why the symbol of Qubuka is a flame and it recognizes the darkness of the past and um, so basically lighting up the darkness of the past but also symbolizes a hope for the future um, 20 years later right now Rwanda is considered to be one of the, f- the safest countries in the region um, we have had lots of successful stories uh, include one of them uh, a few of them include that um, our government has tried our best its best to um, involve as many people as possible within the, the community. So basically, in Rwanda right now, nobody is, is identified as a Hutu or a Tutsi. Um, as much as the previous government did a lot to put in these ideologies that caused the genocide, um, this government is also trying to remove those ideologies and giving us the the understanding that we're all Rwandans, that we're all uh, an equal people no matter what. And one of these two is uh, involving women in the government Uh, Rwanda right now has 64% of women in parliament, and that's the most anywhere in the world. Um, We've also had, uh, as of this year, 1 million people were taken out of the poverty line in Rwanda, which is a big deal in many developed countries. Um, And also 9% of our GDP increased um, as of 2010, I think. so with all of this, most people um, look towards the past but also focus a lot on building their future. And this is not because we think that economic wealth is going to change the past or um, do anything to remove the past because it can something that cannot be forgotten, something that is very much a part of... Um, the lives of people in rwanda uh, i was reading one of the articles that one of the leaders in rwanda um, and he said that it's difficult to say that not a single it's difficult to say to find a family in rwanda that was not affected by the genocide in one way or another and so it's a we recognize that these are wounds that cannot be erased or completely healed, but um, something that we try to do to, uh, as much as it's dark, to also bring light um, to the world. Um, The church, as Liz mentioned again, takes a very, very important role in this. Um, During these events, there's many stories of forgiveness and reconciliation that are um, talked about, so most of them are very powerful. I'd encourage any of you to go look out for them. Um, On the website, there's many videos about this. Um, So the the event in Rwanda, Urumuri, of Qubuka 2010, um, that goes in each district, tries to give this message that despite the past we're all Rwandans and it tries to reunite people um, especially in this time of sorrow and many religious leaders are around and also uh, to provide a place where people can talk and also uh, be there when when they're experiencing their trauma. One of the women that we saw in the video, um, I don't know if you noticed, she had like a, she had crutches. Um, it's a, she's a symbolic figure that um, says a story about. It's a, a place called Inyanje, which was a girls' school where um, in the genocide. They would separate, especially if they went to a school. They would separate, they'd say, If you're Hutu, come here, if you're Tutsi, and then they'd kill the Tutsis. But this girl's school, this Inyangye girl's school, um, decided specifically not to separate. And they were all killed in that place together. And um, somehow their story symbolizes. Unity. Even though they were young, they were young girls, and they symbolize courage and unity in um, the country. So, yeah, um uh, twenty goes beyond just the Rwandan genocide and um, tries to tries to uh, explain that it's not just. About Rwanda, it's also about other places. To try to, as our, to try our best to make sure that this doesn't happen in other places in the world. So, in whatever way we can to um, improve this world through making it uh, a more peaceful place. Yeah. So yeah, as we're closing, uh, the message of Rwanda is not just is a message. Um, has a history that was horrific and hard, as many other places in the world, but it it is also a message of hope, and it is also a message of courage, and um, I would encourage any of you to come to Rwanda (laughs) sometime. Well, well, thank you, you're dismissed, I guess. (laughs)